Good evening and thank you so much for joining us uh, this evening to hear the word. Thank you for taking the time. If you are logging on later in the week and, and hearing this, I uh, just want to thank you for taking that time. We're going to be in the book of Luke in just a moment. So just uh, we're looking forward to, to that. We're, we're working through our uh, study of Luke, uh, the, the, the gospel of Luke, but Jesus as the son of man who presents salvation to all men and uh, what a blessing that is. So let's pray, and then we'll move forward. God, we thank you for this day and for this time. I ask your blessing upon your word. Thank you that it is clear and understandable. Or thank you so much that you are in control. As we look at the events of this week, this year, Lord, we are grateful that nothing escapes your notice. And Lord, nothing also, we also thank you that nothing escapes justice and, and righteousness, and that all things will be made right, that the standard by which we uh, understand you to govern yourself, where that's the standard, and uh, you don't make empty promises, nor do you uh, leave things undone. So, Lord, we thank you and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're in Luke chapter 13 today, and we're going to be looking at the first, oh, probably 18 or 19 verses of Luke chapter 13. You may have heard the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, if you Maybe you've asked that question, and often this question comes up after a natural disaster or after something heinous, uh, a child dying or, or someone who just seems to be this paragon of virtue, you know, having cancer or something to that effect. Why do bad things happen to good people? Really, theologically, we know um, the answer to that question, and really it's the wrong question from the standpoint of there are no such thing. There is no such thing as, as good people. We are all sinners. We all fall short of God's glory, Romans 3.23 says. We uh, are not righteous in any way. Um, we can't do righteous acts on our own, the book of Romans says. In fact, we, were, we are born with a sin nature, and all the sin we do is uh, the byproduct of our sin nature. Our fallen, uh, our fallen nature that, that is in us. And because of this, we deserve to be punished. We deserve to be judged for sin. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. Now, when we ask that question, or when we hear that question being asked, why do bad things happen to good people? It's almost assumed that we understand that we know why bad things happen to bad people. Or maybe if I can put it this way, why good things happen to good people. While we might not say we believe in karma, it kind of makes sense. You know, a bad person and something bad happens, well, that's why. You know, bad things happen to bad people. That's the way it should be. Or vice versa, good things happen to good people. Now, theologians uh, at some level have kind of given this a term, if I can put it that way, from a, from a, a, a theological standpoint. They've given it the term retribution theology. You may or may not have heard that before, but retribution theology basically is a belief uh, that good deeds are always rewarded by God and bad deeds are always punished by God. Um, is that in fact the case, that good deeds are always rewarded and bad deeds are always punished? Well, we know no, that's not, but if we're reading maybe through Proverbs or uh, we could see, you know, tendencies towards that, we can see how that would really make sense. And frankly, the way God has created us, we, we've been created with a sense of um, at least understanding what ought to be, uh, understanding what justice ought to be at, at a very basic level. 
someone does something that is evil, they shouldn't be blessed. That's part of the, the, the frustration that Asaph has in, in Psalm 73, where he's writing of the wicked person who lives a life of luxury and ease. And that's immensely frustrating to him. He, he wonders why he even lives a virtuous life. And maybe you felt that way, where you see the wicked prosper. Or you see someone who denies Christianity or denies the Lord in their behavior or even perhaps in their, their, their speech. And yet they seem to enjoy a comfortable life. That's frustrating. We want to see God honor those who obey, right? Well, Today, we're going to look at a passage where retribution theology is addressed by Jesus. We're going to read an account that's not in any of the other Gospels. It's really only found here in Luke 13. And when we see Jesus tackle this aspect of retribution theology, I think we're going to find that Jesus arrives at a conclusion that maybe we weren't expecting. So if you haven't done so already, let's look at Luke chapter 13. Now, you might be wondering, hey, he's not preaching from church. He's preaching from home. I am preaching from home, and the reason being is that COVID has touched our house. So um, right now we are doing fine health-wise, just that um, my wife has tested positive for COVID. And so outside of losing the sense of smell and, and having the taste be a little bit more dull, she's doing just fine. So... I'm speaking here from home, gonna be home for the next while while we quarantine, but I'm thankful to be able to, to come to you here. This wasn't just a, a down easy time of, of uh, looking in the word, you know, kind of an armchair, pull up your you know cup of coffee and let's just sit and muse. It's, I'm here for a reason, and so, um, but Lord willing, I'll see you soon in person. But as I, uh, as, as I said before, we're gonna be looking at Luke 13. So if you haven't turned there already, go ahead, we'll pick up in verse one. Now on that very occasion, there were some present who reported to him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, in this event, you have Jesus being made aware by maybe some of his followers that Pilate had committed an atrocity against some of the Jewish practitioners. Now, if you remember, Pilate, this is the same Pontius Pilate, same as Pontius Pilate. He was uh, the man who convicted Jesus, ultimately sent him to be crucified. Uh, he was a Roman leader, Roman uh, ruler. But uh, given the extra biblical historians, Pilate was a bold and ruthless and often very cruel leader. He flaunted his authority and frankly, he liked to flaunt it in the face of the Jews. For example, he actually stole from the temple treasury. He stole, he took the funds, seized the funds, and, and furnished an aqueduct that was to be built. Not only that, he used a lot of Roman imagery, which he knew the Jews were going to take offense. They, they viewed it as idolatry or the erection of idols. Yet Pilate uh, had these up and, and just loved really kind of uh, taking it to the Jews. And so a lot of the Jews um, pushed back against this, and many of them... Uh, matter of fact, you may be familiar with the Zealots. Simon, being uh, one of them, uh, became a, a disciple of Jesus Christ, but the Zealot party felt that they ought to push back against the Roman authority. And a lot of times when they did, Rome pushed back and pushed back hard. And so historians, when they see this account 
of what I'm about to read to you here in Luke chapter 13. Historians, they don't necessarily have record of this specific event, but it certainly falls in line with what Pilate would have done elsewhere or at other times. And in this instance, you have Pilate actually entering the temple while Jews were making sacrifice and killing Jews there on the spot. Don't know why or for what reason, but we do know that when when uh, the Luke says that the blood Pilate, the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices, as they were sacrificing, they were killed. And so Jesus, hearing this, um, I mean, certainly uh, the, the massacre of, of his countrymen wouldn't have brought any pleasure or would have been broken. But but we get the sense from this passage that those who brought the story up to him had this sense of retribution theology. Because look at verse 2. Jesus responded and said to them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans just because they suffered this fate? So it stands reason that these people who told Jesus of what happened, that they thought, boy, these, these Jews who were killed, God must have recognized some sin in their life, and they were killed because they were worse sinners. And Jesus says, Do you think that's really why? And in verse 3, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he uses another illustration. Or do you think that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse offenders than all the people, other people who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says the exact same thing. Whether it be being massacred at a sacrifice or having a tower fall on top of you, those people who were killed weren't any worse off than any other sinner. Now, I, I, we bring this up because Jesus addressed this mindset that bad things happen to bad people. I mean, were those who were killed, did they deserve it more than, than anybody else? So it wasn't as if this thinking was unique to Jesus' time. In fact, I'd encourage you, let's, let's just take a moment here and see this thinking, how it plays out in a couple other passages in Scripture. Let's look at Job chapter 4. So if you would turn to Job chapter 4. In Job, we have a man who feared God, yet God allowed this man to have all of his possessions um, taken or destroyed, have his children killed. Um, there was, uh, if you're, you know the story of Job, you know that a man of great prosperity suffered great hardship. And... Um, even his health was taken from him to where he wanted to die. Job had three friends who came and visited him and gave counsel. In fact, the majority of the book of Job in the Old Testament was these friends giving this counsel. And if you look at Job chapter 4, and starting in verse 7, you see some of their mindset, a bit of their mindset. Number, uh, verse 7, remember now, this friend is saying to Job, whoever perished to being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I've seen, those who plow wrongdoing and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. What this friend is saying is, Job, have you ever seen a person who is righteous endure what you've endured? No, what we see is the wicked falls on the wicked. Let's look at Job chapter 8, one of Job's other friends, and the counsel that he gave Job. 
Verse 2, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your sons, or since your sons, sinned against him, then he turned them over to the power of their wrongdoing. Job, you know why your children died? Because they were sinners too. In fact, they were probably worse sinners than you because at least you survived. This was this retribution theology. Job, the reason why all of these bad things are happening is because you must have done something bad, so confess. That was the thinking. Now, if we fast forward into the New Testament, we also see this thinking in the disciples. Look at John chapter 9. John chapter 9. In John 9, it says in verse 1, starting in verse 1, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been born blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? The disciples thought, well, someone couldn't be born blind just because God wanted them to. If this man is to be born blind, then someone must have done something bad in order for him to deserve this. Again, that concept of retribution theology. But look what Jesus says in verse 3. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. Jesus says, no, that's not the case at all. And in fact, when we look at Luke 13 and we see Jesus questioning them, did these Galileans that were killed while sacrificing, were they worse sinners? Did these people who this tower fell on, were they worse sinners? And so what Jesus was getting at was that they were somehow worse off. Now, do we ever see this in our day and age? And the fact is, yeah, we see it often. In fact, we a lot of times see it and hear it shortly after we have a natural disaster or, or perhaps something terrible. What comes to my mind and what I remember perhaps more vividly is the 9-11 attacks. And uh, you can just do a simple Google search and, and find a lot of the ways that Christians, especially, tried to explain why the 9-11 attacks happened. You know, one particular very well-known Southern Baptist pastor said that the 9-11 attacks occurred because our country was supporting abortion. And because so many babies had been killed due to abortion, that this was God's hand of judgment on us. Two other well-known evangelicals said that it was because our country supported homosexuality and they were um, uh, supporting abortion and feminism. And, and because of these sins, God was judging and God not, not only was judging, but God had judged by having the 3,000 plus souls killed. That's retribution theology. But that is erroneous or that is false thinking. Now, I need to explain in that it's not as if homosexuality or abortion are sin. They are. The Bible is quite clear. But why this is wrong thinking and why we shouldn't fall into this way of thinking is that even though it maximizes God's view of sin, it, it's a high view of God's hating of sin. And, and we're all for that. We, we, that's, that's very biblical. But what it does is it singles out certain sinners as being worse than others. Or it singles out certain sins as being really sinful. Either by 
and, and so you have these sinners that are singled out because perhaps of what they've done, the, gre- the, the nature of their sin, or perhaps how much they've done. Now, again, this makes sense from a human standpoint. Why? Because this is man's view of sin. I mean, we have a justice system where a person doesn't get the death penalty because they steal a pack of gum, nor does a person get a slap on the wrist if they commit capital murder. We understand that there are serious sins that require serious punishment. But it's, it, it's, it's false to arrive at the conclusion that when a specific hardship or trial happens, that that is the result of God judging a particular sin and viewing that individual as a worse sinner. What Jesus was saying here is that all people are sinners. That they're all grievous sinners. And the result of sin is death. Now, while some may not die in natural disasters, some may not have these terrible things happen to them and take their life quickly, all will face judgment. So, repent. Repent. That's what Jesus says twice in in Luke chapter 13. Were they worse sinners? By no means. However, it was their responsibility to repent. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And he gives an example here in verse 6. And he began telling a parable. A man had a fig tree which he had planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Look, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, leave it alone for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Jesus gives this parable, and it's pretty clear the symbolism. It's pretty clear that this tree represents Israel and their rejection of Jesus Christ as Messiah. And they weren't bearing fruit. And so judgment was ready. Yet, there was a plea for mercy, a plea for, please, just give us one more year. The vineyard keeper says, I'll dig around it, I'll put in fruit of fertilizer. And if it bears fruit, then fine. But if it doesn't bear fruit, then we'll cut it down. And even in that parable, we see the acknowledgement of the reality of judgment. That if that tree did not bear fruit, it would be cut down. Judgment is certain. Now, before I move on in this passage, I think it's really important as Christians to understand something. You see, as Christians, we can experience God's hand of discipline as the result of our sin, but we do not experience God's judgment. Now, there's a key difference between God's judgment and God's discipline. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll show you that difference. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ 
reconciling the world to himself. And this next part is key. Not counting their wrongdoings against them. And has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Christ took upon himself our sin and received the judgment of God on behalf of us so that we no longer have our wrongdoings counted against us. So that when we experience perhaps discipline from the Lord, as the Lord will do, we can't say that God is somehow judging us because that would then in turn place our wrongdoings back on us and have God count those wrongdoings against us. Look down at verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, we don't experience the judgment of God if we've repented of our sin. Now, this picture of Jesus telling the people, repent, and telling them of the judgment, that, that, that plea for them to repent and that, that picture of patience is, is a theme that we see in the New Testament. You know, think of 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, that, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In fact, let's look there real quick. 2 Peter chapter 3. I don't want to misquote it because this point is so important to our understanding here. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, but a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. And that promise here is that promise of judgment. But he is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And then he goes on to say how the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and that God will judge the earth. So God is patient, but he will judge. Now, back to the picture of the, the tree. You know, the vineyard, the vine dresser said, let me put fertilizer around that. So what exactly would that fertilizer look like? And I think we actually see a little picture of that cultivation of souls here in the next part of, uh, of Luke chapter 13 and this healing of this woman. Okay, so let's look here at uh, back in Luke 13 in verses 10 through 17. Again, this is, this is kind of a, a, an illustration of what that fertilizer would look like. How, can, how would the Lord help cultivate the soil so that people would bear fruit of repentance? Well, let's look at verse 10. Now, Jesus was teaching one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent over double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she, should, she stood up straight again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue leader, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days during which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. By the way, isn't that ridiculous? Come some other day to have a miracle performed, as if you could put it on the calendar. But I digress. Verse 15, The Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites! 
Does each of you on the Sabbath not untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, she's a Jew, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not also have been released from this restraint on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. You see, we see, we, we see the kindness of Jesus in that he would heal this woman and give a clear demonstration of who he is. Now, we don't see this so much in the, uh, the, the English language, but in the original language, if you're looking there at verse, um, uh, let's see here, verse 15, it says, you hypocrites, does each of you on the Sabbath not untie or loose his donkey? He's using a, a kind of a lesser to greater illustration. You would untie your animal so that your animal could get a drink on the Sabbath day, right? I mean, you have enough care for your livestock that you would want them to at least eat and drink, even though it's the Sabbath day, and that might require some effort from you. You would loose your donkey, right? Well, wouldn't it be appropriate for this woman who's been bound by 18 years of this sickness to be loosed? You see that word, the, the phrase in verse 16, should she not have been released? It's the exact same word. You would feel compassion on your donkey to loose it and have it get water, don't you feel compassion on this sister, this Israelite, who is being burned by this affirmity? Don't you feel compassion enough to have her loosed? You know, it fails the eye test, if I can put it that way. Something so obvious. Couldn't you see the, the blessing that comes from loosening this woman from her, from her uh, illness? Jesus' teaching and miracle of this Jewish woman, they would have all been the fertilizer that Israel would have needed. But they were hard-hearted. They were too hard-hearted to see what was right in front of them. You see, this woman that was spiritually oppressed, in addition to be physically oppressed, this woman enjoyed the kindness of the Lord. And those who saw the miracle were delighted by the action and by Jesus' response, with the exception of the synagogue employees. Now, in this healing, I just want to make a side observation here. In this healing, we see Jesus actually ministering in, I don't want to say disregarding norms, but disregarding some traditions that were frankly extra biblical. For example, healing on the Sabbath day. That was always going to be a point of contention to these, to these religious leaders. And yet he did it time and time again. In fact, in Luke 14, we're going to see another instance of Jesus healing on the Sabbath day. But Jesus also welcomed a woman. Now, this might not be note, notable to you, but during this time, rabbis, they didn't teach women. Men were the ones that were taught. Women would either be instructed by other women or perhaps their husbands, but they weren't part of the instruction. This woman was invited by Jesus. Look back there at um at uh, verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her over. That would, have been, that would have been a shock to those in the presence. I mean, there's a bunch of men, and he's calling a woman over. But not only is he calling this woman over, he places his hands on her. This would be a sign of love. Jesus is the son of man. He felt for her. He understood the bondage that she was in and the amount of time Jesus loved this woman. He wanted to bring her comfort and release power over her illness. Jesus broke 
those extra biblical traditions, to show them their hypocrisy, to show them that it is the loving kindness of God that leads men to repentance. Christ showed mercy to her, though she did not deserve it. Did she demonstrate any faith that he would heal her? I mean, other stories we see of, of people where Jesus says, your faith has saved you. With this woman, we see no faith. We see the fact that there was really no good work that she did to deserve this. Remember the whole retribution theology thing? Because if we're going to believe retribution theology, where the tower falls on really bad people, what did this woman do to deserve this great action? She didn't do anything. What did she do to deserve this healing, to have this satanic oppression? That's what Jesus called it. Having this, this oppression over her be released. To our knowledge, there was no major sin in her life that was the cause of this ailment, and there was no major virtue in her life to cause this healing. Though God allowed for the Galileans to die at the altar by the Tower of Siloam, Jesus permitted this woman to live. He invited her to him and healed her without any request from her or any faith from her. So what do we take from this passage? And I, I, I've intentionally left this last point. I, I've intentionally left really the whole point of this passage to the end. Because I, what I want you to take from this passage is, is really, I, it's really a quotation from Romans chapter 11 and verse 22. And that's this. Recognize both the kindness and the severity of God. Recognize that both the kindness but the severity of God. If you are born again, you've been the recipient of a great kindness, of a grace that is undeserved. We have the greatest gift of all, salvation, forgiveness of sins, and we did nothing to deserve that, nothing to earn it. But if you are not saved, if you're listening to this, and it could be this week, it could be, who knows, months, years from now, if you are not born again, then you stand condemned and await God's judgment. And there isn't any amount of good works that somehow bends God's opinion towards you because you're a sinner. Your, your whole disposition is stained by sin. You know, it's kind of like, if, if I can make a point of comparison, you know, I did some painting recently and I, I put drop cloths down and... Um, you know, I, I must have spilled some paint on the drop cloth because as I was walking from one place to the next, I, I noticed that I, I was actually starting to track paint. I tracked paint in the kitchen and I tracked paint, you know, out into the hallway. And I'm looking at my shoes and sure enough, I must have stepped in some paint. The fact is, I didn't paint the kitchen floor. I didn't take the brush. I didn't take the bucket. I didn't put any paint on there. But I tracked paint in. You know why? Because I had paint on me. That's the way our sin impacts our lives. Our sin nature touches everything. And when we are unforgiven, when we stand condemned, then our sin stains every good deed that we could, that we could, we could perform. And so what we need is complete and total cleansing. We need the forgiveness that it's offered through Jesus Christ. And so I'd encourage you 
Do you know this Lord and Savior? Is he your Savior from sin? Now, you may have heard this a thousand times, but even as a Christian, as I'm studying through this passage, I have to ask myself that same question. Am I really born again? The Bible tells me that's what I need to do. This is the thrust of this message of Luke, that Jesus offers salvation as the Son of Man. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you, have, you, have you made him the Lord of your life? Or are you holding on to religiosity or religious traditions to somehow validate God? Are you holding on to a retribution theology that you, somehow all of your good works are going to you know, beg God to, to let you into heaven and to bless you? That's not the way God works. Because he, he's not one that can be forced to, to, to somehow owe us anything. He doesn't owe us anything. And yet he is a God that freely gave his son so that we might become the children of God. That is the Lord that we serve. That is the salvation offered to these folks, these individuals. And we stand blessed. So let's take the time today to recognize the kindness of God, but also the severity of God, that he will judge and that people stand condemned when they are without him. Let's thank him. Let's praise him. Let's be quick to share him with those who, who do not know him, that God has put into our paths. All right, well, let's pray. God, you're good. Lord, just really this, this passage more or less serves as a correction, perhaps, of, of, of uh, unbiblical thinking, but it also serves as a reminder of the salvation that you offer and how we should view it. God, I pray that we wouldn't be tempted to fall into an incorrect way of thinking. Lord, we've enjoyed your hand of blessing for years. I think especially of our country. Lord, we've enjoyed freedoms that many have never tasted. We've enjoyed prosperity and blessing that many can only imagine. But God, help us not to somehow take that and assume that it's because of our virtue that we've been blessed this way. Lord, to be sure, we have much to be thankful for with our founding fathers, with, with men who gave their lives and sacrificed so that we can enjoy what we've enjoyed. And Lord, we do recognize that there is a principle that, that Lord, when we, uh, when we reap sin or when we sow sin, we reap its consequences. And when we sow righteousness, we reap its consequences. But Lord, nothing is demanded of you. And you see fit to honor or to judge on your time frame. I thank you for your patience, that you were patient enough to allow us to be born again. That while we were yet sinners, your son died for us and that we could be, that, that, that we could be tolerated at some level. That not our sin tolerated, but Lord, that you were long-suffering and that you extended salvation to us and we thank you for that gift. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to be long-suffering to those that we love that do not know you. Perhaps even someone listening to this sermon, that they might recognize you as creator Lord, that they might recognize that they, your creation, they're sinners. And that because of their sin, they, they, they require judgment. 
or that they deserve hell. But God, I pray that today would be the day that their eyes would be opened to the loving kindness of God, to your grace in giving your son to pay for our sins with his blood, not ours, with his life, not ours, and in turn, offering us forgiveness, freely given, not by works, not by religion, but only by a person, Jesus Christ. Lord, today may it be the day that those who don't know him, who are hearing this, might turn and repent and believe and be saved and bear fruit of that salvation. Lord, nothing would delight us more and continue to give us the privilege of seeing that take place in 21, 2021 and in years to come. If you would tarry, Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So thank you for joining me again. I'm not sure when you're listening to this, but I trust this has been a blessing to you. Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Um, hopefully someone that uh, will be speaking from the church building. But regardless, uh, we trust that this has been a blessing to you. Have a wonderful week. Please keep one another in prayer.